You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't we open those Bibles to two places, to John chapter 20 and to Acts chapter 2. I know this is asking uh, some coordination on your part. You can stick your finger in one passage there and another finger in the other passage. I think you can do it. John chapter 20 and Acts chapter 2. John 20 occurred on the evening of Jesus' resurrection, Acts chapter 2, a few days following the Lord's ascension to heaven. We'll read them both, but before we do, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people and to study your word. And Lord, we pray tonight that the Holy Spirit would move among us. Lord, that as we talk about the Holy Spirit, that it would ignite our faith our hearts, our passion for you. Lord, find ready vessels here. Find usable vessels among us, Lord, that you can fill and overflow and use in these last days. Lord, I do believe you want to pour out your spirit in these days. And so, Lord, why not begin tonight and why not begin among us? Lord, work in our hearts this evening. We love you and we thank you for this time together, and we ask that you make the most of it, Lord, and do a good work in our midst this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in John chapter 20, verse 19, we read, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst And said to them, Peace be with you. Now when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts chapter 2 and verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. In John chapter 20, the risen Lord surprisingly appears to his weary and defeated followers. The disciples, they believe in Jesus, and the Lord takes a deep breath. He breathes on them, and he tells them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Greek word translated there, spirit, is the word pneuma, from which we get our words pneumonia or pneumatic. Pneuma means wind or breath. When Jesus breathed on his disciples, he drew from deep inside. He took a deep breath. And he gave them something of himself. The Spirit rose from deep within Jesus, carrying the nature of Jesus to continue on the work of Jesus. 
In that moment, the Holy Spirit came as a gentle puff of breath to indwell his followers. You could say deep passed unto deep. Eternal life, the life of Jesus, was imparted from the Lord to his disciples. He breathed on them. But what was a gentle puff of breath following the resurrection became a windstorm seven weeks later at the Feast of Pentecost. Perhaps in that same upper room, the disciples had gathered again, and once more they received the Holy Spirit. But this time, there was a greater intensity. This was a new manifestation of the Spirit. Listen again to how Luke describes the disciples' monumental experience Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing, mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. The breath of Jesus had intensified into a windstorm. And this was not the last spiritual windstorm in the book of Acts. In fact, they reoccurred on a frequent basis. They can even happen today. In fact, I'm praying that the wind will begin to blow in this room even as I speak. Physical windstorms are powerful forces of nature that come in many different forms. There's dust storms and sandstorms and thunderstorms and blizzards and hurricanes and tornadoes. The wind swirls in and blows hard. It drives the dust or the sand or the rain or the snow or the hail. It picks up whatever object it captures and it unleashes it like a torpedo. Tornadoes can pack winds as strong as 250 miles per hour, can cut a swath a mile wide and even 50 miles long. Hurricanes are massive windstorms. They can swell to 300 miles in diameter and impact an entire coastline. My wife grew up in South Florida, and she tells stories of her father preparing for a hurricane. He would board up the windows of the house, and then he would climb into the palm trees, and he would pick all of the coconuts, lest they become storm-propelled cannonballs. In both a tornado and in a hurricane, it's not just the wind that causes damage, but the debris that it catapults. And this is what happens in a spiritual windstorm. This power, this dynamic of the Holy Spirit swirls into a church and sweeps that community of believers off their knees. It propels that church into action. The Spirit is now the driving force behind their witness and their service and their love. A church that was once just taking up space becomes an influence on its community. As in a physical windstorm, a gust of the supernatural stirs up the debris. The Holy Spirit captures whatever is in his path and launches it with heavenly propulsion. And if the wind is the Holy Spirit, then we are the debris. I hope you're not offended by that analogy. But spiritually speaking, there's no better symbolism. Psalm 103 verse 14 says of God, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're but dust. On our own, that's all we are. We're as useful to God as the dust on the top shelf. We're nothing but lint until God's Spirit grips us in his influence. 
When we get caught up in the wind of the Spirit, worthless debris gets turned into spiritual missiles. A church has no lasting influence on its community until it's been stirred up and launched out by God's Spirit. If we're going to make a difference in our world today, we need fresh breezes and strong gusts of the Holy Spirit. And when this happens, we call it revival. This is what I want to speak to you about tonight, spiritual windstorms. I want to discuss the subject of revival. You know, the Baptist churches that I grew up in always had an annual revival. The revival lasted several nights, usually several nights in a row. The best revivals always seemed to be held in a tent for some reason. They would bring in a guest preacher, add a soloist or a musical group, maybe someone who could relate to the youth. There might even be a prize for the person who brought the most people to the revival that night. The whole idea was to generate some excitement in the local church. But this is not what I mean when I speak of a revival. A biblical revival is more than a block of meetings on the church calendar. It's a spiritual windstorm. It's a movement of God's Spirit in the hearts of God's people. Throughout history, the Holy Spirit has graciously visited humanity with these spiritual awakenings. These movements have shaped the church and saved the lost and sent society in a more godly trajectory. Scottish preacher William Nicole once wrote, It is by revivals that the church of God makes its most visible advance. When all things seem calm, when no breath stirs the air, when the sea is like lead and the sky is low and gray, when all worship seems to have ended but the worship of vanity, it is then that the Spirit of God is poured upon the church. Suddenly, the Christianity of the apostles and martyrs, not that of the philosophers and liberals, rises from the catacombs of oblivion and appears young and fresh in the midst of the obsolete things of yesterday. And it is for this that we long for real Christianity to rise, and for God's kingdom to advance. This is what happened in the 12th century A.D. with Peter Waldo and his Waldensians. These believers renounced the materialism in the church, and they believed that everyone should have a Bible in their own language. It was a prelude to a further awakening that was to come. The Protestant Reformation lasted over 100 years and left behind the five solas of orthodoxy by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone, by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. We could also point to the 18th century's first and second great awakenings as tremendous times of revival. The first great awakening led to the abolition of slavery in England and changes to child labor laws. The second great awakening saw American churches packed to the gills in the South, both slave owners and slaves gathered together in open fields to worship God because the churches weren't large enough to accommodate the crowds. It was the beginning of the camp meeting, a tradition of Southern evangelicalism. In 1904, a Welch coal miner named Evan Roberts had been praying fervently for a revival. He was just 25 years old, a tall, skinny chap 
an unlikely flashpoint for anything of colossal proportions. He had been studying for the ministry when he asked his pastor if he could hold some evening meetings in the church. Well, at first, the attendance was sparse. But before long, shops in town began to close so the employees could get to the church and reserve a seat for the meetings. Soon the roadways to the church were clogged with out-of-town seekers coming to see what was happening. Often the services lasted until 4.30 in the morning. Sin was confessed. Sinners were converted. Homes and families were restored. For the next couple of years, all across Wales, bars closed, jails emptied, churches were filled, even soccer matches were canceled to avoid conflicts with the revival. Welch miners were so transformed by the Holy Spirit that their mules had to be retrained to work without the prodding of curse words. During the revival of 1904, two kids were one day heard offering their explanations for what was going on in their community. One child said to the other, do you know what is happening in our town? The other child replied, no, I don't, except that Sunday comes every day now. The first child added, why, Jesus has come to live in our town. And here are two great definitions for a revival. It's when Jesus comes to reside and rule in a community, and it's when it feels like every day is a day of worship. Of course, our family, Calvary Chapel, was born in a revival. The 1960s spawned a generation disillusioned by materialism, war in Vietnam, racial inequality. The youth rejected the shallowness of their parents' morality and immersed themselves in drugs and free sex. But that's when God sent a Jesus movement, which taught the Bible, giving the young people the truth that they lacked and emphasizing the Holy Spirit, providing them the heavenly high for which they craved. It began in the heart of Chuck and Kay Smith on the beaches of Southern California, and it swept the world. When it comes to revival, I like the observation by preacher Alexander Whitey. He said this, there is a divine mystery about revivals. God's sovereignty is in them. In other words, when the Spirit of God begins to move in a revival, patterns and predictability fly out the window. God takes the helm. The unexpected occurs. Baptist preacher Vance Habner once said, when I was a boy, preachers talked about holding a revival, but what we really need is somebody who will turn a revival loose. Revival is more than holding a meeting. It occurs when God turns His Holy Spirit loose on the church and then turns the church loose on a needy world. And this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. A spiritual windstorm sent from God's throne caused the church in Jerusalem to soar and to roar. Luke paints the picture in Acts 2 verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. When you do a close inspection of verse 2, you find some interesting insights regarding spiritual revivals. Let me share with you a few. First, this Greek word translated suddenly, it means unawares or unexpectedly. When the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, it happened spontaneously. 
You know, in nature, when serious winds begin to stir, the storms are tracked by meteorologists. As conditions become conducive for a tornado, a watch gets issued. When a tornado is spotted, they upgrade it to a warning. But when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, there was no watch or warning. They were just waiting, as Jesus had told them, resting in the promise that God had made to them. You know, I like that waiting. Waiting implies no anxiety, no uncertainty, just the expectation that what the Father has promised, He will deliver. But when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, a sound was heard. The word translated sound is the word echoes, from which we get our word echo. Here's its definition. A sound of uncertain affinity, a loud or confused noise, a roar. You know, I've never been in high winds that would constitute a tornado or a hurricane. Yet here's an account I read from someone who has. He reports, the wind blew so hard, the walls of the house shook. We looked outside through a window, and surprisingly, everything was flying away. We couldn't even open the door because it would have been impossible to close it afterward. One unforgettable thing is the whistle of the wind, like a train approaching near our house. And this is what happened on the day of Pentecost, when God's Spirit came upon His church. It was like a windstorm. They even heard the roar of a ferocious wind. One author paraphrases Luke's description. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale-forced. A wind from heaven rocked their world. You know, immediately after his resurrection, Jesus drew a puff of air, and he breathed gently on his disciples. But here he blows on them a mighty, rushing, gale-force wind. And both experiences were indicative of the encounter the disciples had with the Holy Spirit at that time. In John 20, the disciples saw the risen Lord. They expressed their faith, and it was rewarded with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the Spirit came upon them. When He did, it was for empowerment. This time, Jesus blew hard on His disciples. He filled their sails with a wind that would cause the gospel ship to sail to its destination despite the storms it would inevitably face. Don't forget, the early church was born in a firestorm of persecution. The Greek word translated witness is martyr. Today, a martyr is a person who dies for their faith. This meaning developed when most of the first witnesses had to pay the ultimate price to stand for Jesus. And yet even in such a discouraging climate, the church prevailed in its mission, all because of the Holy Spirit. Notice, too, the word rushing. It means to carry. A strong wind captures stuff and carries it through the air. Remember, the impact of a windstorm is produced not just by its high-velocity winds, but the winds pick up debris and propel it in tremendous speeds and for far distances. And you see, this is what God does with us. We are the debris that He wants to launch and send and use to strike targets that need His love and truth. Folks get stirred up, and they get sent out in a windstorm. 
Missionaries get raised up in a revival. God gives us marching orders and we willingly accept. In revival times, servants of God who were content to just pack a pew begin to get involved. And notice the wind in Acts chapter 2 was a mighty wind. The Amplified Version correctly renders it, the rushing of a violent tempest blast. This is not a mild breeze that leaves you untouched. It's a rustling wind. The Holy Spirit picks up the pieces of our lives, blows them about, and then rearranges them as He pleases. The spiritual windstorm is a strong wind that impacts you and that dramatically alters your life. You're different after you've been touched by a mighty wind of God. And like a tornado or a hurricane, you don't experience a mighty wind without incurring some damage. The power of the Holy Spirit cleans us up before He sends us out. Conviction occurs. Repentance takes place. Brokenness sets in. Sins get confessed and old habits are abandoned and evil gets renounced. Don't think that you can be an effective follower of Jesus and conduct business as usual. You can't. To seek revival is to invite a windstorm of change to blow upon our lives and blow out all our selfishness and pride. This rushing mighty wind definitely had a violent impact on the early church. Just days later, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit. They played the hypocrite. And we're told that God brought judgment upon them quickly. He struck them dead. As with most windstorms, there was casualties. Hey, the only people who stand in a windstorm are those who bow down. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. Reminds me of the three preachers. They were discussing the revivals that had occurred in each of their local churches. The Baptist pastor said, praise the Lord, we had ten, ten new people come to know Jesus. Not to be outdone, the Assemblies of God pastor, he fired back. Well, we had ten new people filled with the Holy Spirit. That's when the Presbyterian pastor said, I've got even better news than that. As a result of our revival, we had ten cantankerous people leave our church. Well, you see, sometimes that happens in a revival. Stubborn and unrepentant folks who dig in their heels and refuse to change, they get convicted or they get uprooted. A spiritual windstorm is peaceful and disturbing. God brings peace to our hearts, but He brings an unsettledness to our lives. The Spirit takes us over and shakes us up and bakes us in the fires of adversity and makes us into what He wants us to be. A windstorm is the confluence of all kinds of pressure cells and atmospheric stresses. My point is, if your goal is to maintain the status quo and keep your life neatly arranged according to predetermined plans, a windstorm is going to be an uncomfortable place for you to be. When stuff starts blowing about, you're no longer in control. But if you want to touch God and to know His power, then you'll want to be in the wind. Another great spiritual awakening reached the shores of Britain and Ireland around the year 400 A.D. 
Men like Ninian and Patrick and Columba risked their lives to spread the gospel among the nature worshipers. And the spiritual awakening that ensued had powerful and far-reaching effects. Celtic Christianity snatched the British Isles from the darkness of paganism into the light of God's truth and of God's word. And history tells us that this brave brand of Christianity had a special name for the Holy Spirit. They called him On God Gloss. It's a Gaelic phrase that means the wild goose. To these fearless Christians, not only was the Holy Spirit the gentle dove who rested on Jesus at his baptism, he was also the wild goose who roams the skies and lands wherever he pleases. And I love this idiom for the Holy Spirit. A wild goose can't be trained or controlled or tracked. You don't bend his instincts to your will. He has a mind of his own. And the same is true with God's Spirit. A, God, a wild goose is noisy and raucous and aggressive. The bird's honk is loud and challenging. Up close, a wild goose can be unnerving, even frightening. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit cooed like a dove. But in Acts chapter 2, he swooped down from heaven and he filled the disciples with new wine. Overwhelmed with joy, they were ecstatic in their praise and they were bold in their witness. Later, they were even accused of a morning drunk. In Acts chapter 2, the goose was on the loose. God's Spirit had stirred up the church. He made his men bold and daring and dangerous. They became a threat to the enemy. You know, the other day I had a firsthand encounter with a wild goose. There's a lake near my house, and wild geese are often on the lake. Well, I was strolling by, minding my own business, when one of these birds decided to land on top of me. He might have honked, but I had my headphones on. I couldn't hear him. I didn't see him until he was almost on me. This huge goose, and I mean, it was big, especially when his wings were spread. This huge goose was in the air behind me. It sailed inches from my head. Its trajectory landed him about three feet right in front of me. His flyby nearly scared me to death. If I hadn't a ducked, that goose would have hit me. If, if I hadn't a ducked, <laughs> that goose would have hit me. It was nearly my swan song. It was definitely foul play. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm just not down with the idea that wild geese are roaming my neighborhood. It, it gives me goosebumps when I think about it. From now on, though, I'm looking around. I'm taking a gander. I'm definitely trying to be more nimble in case I have to jump out. I'm playing it loosey-goosey these days. Well, enough with the punishment. But here's my point. I believe Celtic Christianity got it right. Sometimes the gentle dove acts like a wild goose. Thus, our faith needs to be flexible. We all need to live loosey-goosey. You never know when the Holy Spirit is going to drop in on you to do a new thing. 
Hey, we're told to be led by the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In a nutshell, the Christian life is a wild goose chase. Before he died, the world's foremost authority on the subject of revival was a man named J. Edwin Orr. In the early 1970s, he was presenting a series of lectures on revival at Columbia Bible College. A student asked him, Dr. Orr, besides praying for revival, what can I do to help bring it about? Without any hesitation, Dr. Orr replied, you can let it begin with you. Revival that's community-wide, even worldwide, always begins with a mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit that blows through and cleans out God's house first. Again, verse 2, this rushing mighty wind, it filled the whole house. Notice that word, it filled. Here's another revival insight. The word translated fill means to cram or to permeate. The wind of the Holy Spirit filled every corner of the room. Believers became so saturated with the Spirit, His influence colored all that they thought and all that they did. Again, the Amplified Version describes the disciples in the upper room. They were all filled, diffused throughout their souls with the Holy Spirit. Have you been diffused throughout with the Holy Spirit? You know, whenever my wife Kathy cooks a roast, she, she slow cooks it in the crock pot. And all day long, that aroma, the aroma of that roast rises up and it invades every corner of our house. When it's time for dinner, everybody already knows what's going to be served. All day long, we've been smelling it. Our senses have been primed. And this is what happens in a revival. Spiritual perception gets heightened. Folks begin to sense God's presence in unusual ways. They begin to experience God's power. His love and joy at times is so thick you can cut it with a knife. In a revival, people sometimes get saved before the preacher starts preaching. They just walk in and they sense so strongly that God is there. They immediately want to respond. In an actual windstorm, say a sandstorm on the edge of the desert, there's nowhere to escape the wind and the sand. It seeps into the house through the cracks and crevices. It comes in under the doors and between the window panes. The wind's influence is inescapable. And this is the influence of the Holy Spirit in a spiritual windstorm. Revival produces such a weighty revelation of the reality of God that people are forced to consider Jesus and deal decisively with their sin. It's as if they get sandblasted by the Holy Spirit. He cuts through the layers of veneer to restore an inner purity. In today's world, it is so easy for people to just ignore the things of God, just shrug their shoulders at Christianity, Assume a kind of take-it-or-leave-it attitude. The answer for this ambivalence is a spiritual windstorm. And notice in Acts chapter 2, the word whole. The influence of the Spirit filled the whole house where they were sitting. The Greek word is holos, from which we get our word holistic. It means complete or thorough. Holistic medicine is the treatment of not just the body, but of the body and the soul, the whole person. 
And the influence of the Holy Spirit is always holistic. He lives inside of us, not just on Sunday, but seven days a week. He alters not just our eternity, but our today. He governs not only my ministry, but my sexuality. He affects us not only spiritually, but morally. He touches not only our church, but our job and our homes. He influences not just what we say or think, but how we go about our daily lives. When a spiritual windstorm begins to blow, no corner of our life remains unaffected by the Holy Spirit. Throughout the book of Acts, the author is describing a revival, an ongoing windstorm. In Acts chapter 2, the wind blows hard. You can even hear it whistle. By the end of that first day, 3,000 souls have been captured in its swirl. In Acts chapter 4, the house physically shakes. In Acts chapter 5, the wind whips so violently, it takes out a hypocritical couple. But even the wake-up call doesn't diminish the freshness and power of this mighty wind. It creates a storm of love that permeates all that the disciples do. So that in Acts chapter 4, when it sums up this windstorm, it says, great grace and great power. Don't you want great grace and great power? I do. And for the remainder of the book of Acts, the wind howls and blows and sends Jesus' disciples to the four corners of the earth as his light and witness. Hey, I want to be caught up in a windstorm. In my research for this message, I discovered that hurricanes originate in a geographical area known as the doldrums. The doldrums. It's a narrow belt of ocean with low pressure, little if no wind, and generally calm seas. The doldrums lie near the equator between the trade winds. In the Atlantic Ocean, the doldrums are north of the equator, thus there are no hurricanes in the South Atlantic. In the Pacific, the doldrums are on both sides of the equator, thus typhoons can hit in either northern or southern hemispheres. Ironically, all windstorms originate in the middle of the doldrums. And let me say the same is true spiritually. Fresh breezes of the Holy Spirit new gusts of supernatural strength, heavenly hurricanes of revival also start in what we could call the doldrums of our lives. You see, one day a Christian or maybe a group of Christians decides they've wasted too much time in the spiritual doldrums. They get honest before God. They admit that their life has been lacking that they're just going through the motions of devotion, that they're living below what God intended. Their Christianity is powerless. Their witness is listless. Their service for Jesus has grown tedious. Their spirituality has become monotonous. Their morality seems meaningless. One day, this person or persons wakes up floating in the doldrums. They admit their discontent, And they become desperate enough to pray to God to send the wind. Here's what we should realize. If you or I find ourselves in the doldrums, if we've hit a lull, 
It only means that we're in perfect position to catch a gust of wind. The Holy Spirit starts His work at the point of our neediness. God begins His movements in our doldrums. Again, Vance Havner writes, The greatest need for America is an old-fashioned, heaven-born, God-sent revival. Throughout the history of the church, when clouds have hung the lowest, when sin has seemed blackest and faith has been weakest, there have always been a faithful few who have besought the Lord to revive His work. And God has always answered with such supplication, filling each heart with His love, kindling each soul with fire from above. I love that quote because it highlights the two keys to spiritual revival. Our desperation and God's willingness. God is willing, but are we desperate? I once thought that as the years went by, being a pastor would get easier. (laughs) Instead, it's gotten harder. Without the Holy Spirit, I'm just a sailboat on a stagnant sea. I am dead in the water. As the years go by, I realize more and more how much I need the wind. Pastors tend to act like Kevin Fast. Kevin is a Lutheran pastor and a strongman competitor from Canada. And on September the 18th, 2009, Kevin set his ninth Guinness World Record in the category of heavy pulling. He strapped himself into a harness connected to a C-17 cargo plane. This aircraft, by the way, weighs 400,000 pounds. Well, with his sneakers digging into the runway, Kevin leaned forward. And with all his might, he started to pull. Kevin was able to move that airplane 8.88 meters, 8.8 meters, nearly 30 feet, in 1 minute and 16 seconds setting the world record for the heaviest aircraft pulled by a human being. It was a tremendous act of near superhuman strength. And yet, sadly, Kevin's feet resembles the approach that many pastors and churches are taking toward God's work, spreading the gospel and planting churches and discipling people can be like that huge airplane. The enormous strength of a gifted few individuals can pull it along for short distances and for brief intervals. But there's a much easier way to move a C-17 cargo plane than pull it. You can crank that baby up and let it fly. And this is what happens in a revival. When we get the wind of the Holy Spirit under our wings, we can soar. Rather than inch forward, God's work takes off. If Pastor Chuck told Calvary Chapels once, he told us a thousand times. He would always quote from Galatians chapter 3, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The flesh will keep us grounded. We can't get off the, off the ground if we're only resting on our own efforts. If we want to really sail, we need to catch a gust of spiritual wind. It's true. In the church, like on the sea, the voyage is always better when the wind is at our back. This is why we need a revival. We need a windstorm. Every year, 
during the first week of May, the National Weather Service sponsors a special event. It's called Hurricane Preparedness Week. Americans in coastal areas are encouraged to prepare for hurricane force winds. And I believe if we could get a glimpse of God's calendar, this is also what these days would be about. For all of us who live close to the heavenly shore need to be preparing for a windstorm. There's nothing we can do to deserve such an outpouring. When it comes, it'll be by grace. But we can care enough about God and about people to ask. We can ask. Don't you long for more of God and His influence? That God's presence would be heavy when we gather? That the strongholds of sin would be broken? That love among God's family would flourish? That God's peace would flow down to troubled hearts like a river? That a spiritual awakening will occur that stops the crime in our community and dries up the drug traffic and brings back respect in our schools and causes racial groups to live in harmony and blesses and strengthens marriages and awakens men to be the leaders in their home. Don't you pray for such a movement? I do. These days, I'm asking God for a spiritual windstorm. And I'm anticipating the first gusts in the very near future. I hope you'll join me in asking. Hey, we've tried it all in this country. We look to politics and media and religion to stem the rising tide of depravity and unrest. Why not seek God for His help? Why not? Let's cry to the Lord Jesus Christ for a true, heaven-sent, Holy Spirit revival. And let's pray that it begins with us. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. Lord, there's nothing special about us here tonight. That you would send us a revival. That you would begin it in this church. But you don't ask for, for any specialness. You only ask that we ask. That we seek. That we knock. That we trust you to be a good and gracious father. And you look for children who believe that you love giving good gifts to your kids. And so, Lord, we, we're not a special group tonight, but, Lord, we are a desperate group tonight. And we love you so much. And we long for your movement in our world today. Lord, we cry out tonight for our children who are trapped in sin and our neighbors who are lost and our co-workers who who don't know the Bible from the Sears catalog. Lord, we long for something to move in our community, for strongholds to, to topple, and for people to be saved, and for the Holy Spirit to build up His kingdom, and for the name of Jesus to be respected and glorified. We long for this, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that You send revival 
to our hearts, to our homes, to Modesto, to California, and to our country. We pray, Lord, and we'll keep on praying and keep on asking. And we'll do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Sandy Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Sandy's teaching ministry by visiting sandyadams.org.